You ready? Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Conversations about sex work in the media are rarely honest about all the complexities. They typically only talk about the dangers or only talk about the glamour. But actually, it's way more complicated. My name is Sarah Daniel, and I'm the founder and director of Unconditional, a nonprofit for women who work in the sex industry. We exist to be the bridge between the church and sex workers. We bring gifts to local strip clubs and begin life-transforming friendships. We say life-transforming because when a church lady and a stripper become best friends, both of their lives and stereotypes of each other are forced to transform. We also help connect women to unique resources and provide wraparound support. If you're in sex work and need assistance, it can be really difficult to find a service provider that won't judge you and can understand the unique challenges you may face. Over the past six years of running Unconditional, I've realized just how little the general population understands about the sex industry. I know because I was completely clueless at the beginning. We're starting this podcast to give an opportunity and platform for our friends to share about issues that are important to them in their work. Our hope is that when you're finished listening, you can understand that sex workers are just people, just like you and me. We know that this topic can cause some strong reactions and opinions, and you probably won't agree with what every guest has to say. And if you're a sex worker, your experience in this occupation may be very different from what you hear. I encourage you to keep listening. We will have a variety of viewpoints, perspectives, and experiences represented throughout the show. We want to represent the diversity of this industry as every person has their own story. And as we know, it can be really complicated. In order to protect our guests from any repercussions of participating in this podcast, all names have been changed. Identifying information of clubs or other people mentioned in this podcast have been censored out. Due to the subject matter, viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to this episode of It's Complicated. We are back after being off for a couple of months. Uh, We had a pretty crazy summer around here that got really busy and uh, I'd take some time off for different things. So we are back in the studio today and I'm here with my friend Jersey J. And she's super psyched to talk to us today. I'm just saying she feels like a superstar for recording <laughs> recording this. Yes, I really do. So superstar Jersey J. Uh, we have been friends um, since July, I think, maybe yeah. June. So since June. the summer, we got uh, introduced through another service provider. And we were pretty much like instant friends. It clicked really well. Yes. and. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed getting to know you. So today we're going to be diving into the topic of addiction in the sex industry. And Jersey has been um, sweet enough to open up about her own personal struggles. And yeah, so if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us a little bit about your background, maybe how long you were in the industry, how long you've been out, how you got started, all that jazz. Hi, uh, my name's Jersey J. Um, I have been in and out of the industry a big part of 10 years of my life, um, and I have been clean uh, five months, going on five months now, and I've been out of the industry for six months. Um, how I got started in the industry was I was facing five felonies, mm. 
and I had a boyfriend, and he was incarcerated, and his mother, I was living with his mother, um, and she said, how are you going to get a job? You have five felonies. So she took me to a store, had me pick out an outfit, took me home, and had me walk around um, a vacuum, holding a vacuum cleaner, and put the heels on, and so I could learn to walk in the hills. She um, then decided to drive me up to a club, and she gave me a Xanax. And once we were inside the club, it was just me, her, and the owner, or the bartender who was I was auditioning for. And she said, here, take another Xanax, and here, I'll buy you a shot, which I got a shot of vodka. And she said, get up there on stage and work it like... No one is here except for her son, which was my boyfriend, fiance at the time. Um, and she said, do it like he's the only one in the room. Just close your eyes and dance for him and like he's the only one watching. So that's how I got started. And after that, I was hooked. Um, I lived with her. The money was very addictive. Um, and... Did you, so she is the one that drove you to the club, gave you Xanax, told you to go audition. So did she keep the money that you earned? Did you see the money? Not all of it. Every night, well, I would work nights, so then she would come pick me up from the club, or if I got a ride, the next morning she would say, how much did you make? And I would tell her, and then she said, okay, well, uh, the bills are due, and I would have to give her a portion of what I made. So, um, I know we've talked a little bit about the story before. So, after, did you get tired of giving her some of the money? After months, I did, yes. And that's why I moved out. After about six months, I moved out. Okay. Because uh, it was always something else. Like, it was always, um, my fiancé was still incarcerated. And it was always... Well, my husband doesn't know about this bill, so why can't you just give me this much money and we're, you know, we'll go ahead. That way we don't have to upset her husband Mm -hmm. and get him upset. So, um, well, the dogs need this or, you know, uh, my fiancé, he needed this. He needed this much commissary money. He needed this much phone money. The electricity bill was too high. It was always something. I need gas in my car. Mm -hmm. And not only did I dance, I also would wake up in the morning, as soon as the sun arose, she would wake me up, she would give me um, about three Norcos and a couple Xanax, cup of coffee, kick my day starting, she's a rise and shine, honey, because let's get going, and she would, um, we would go clean apartments, mm. elderly people's apartments. Mm. Did, during... you, did you see that money? Um, no, I never seen that. She paid me in pills. Wow. So, and then I would, so I'd be cleaning apartments all day. About noon, we would stop. She would drive me through Taco Bell or, you know, McDonald's, give me a cheeseburger, get me a burrito. And then I would come home, I would go home, I'd sleep for two hours, and bam, I'd be right back at the club. Wow. And I worked every day. Wow. So, I know that, you know, we talked, and it was, you know, you were... It was, uh, at the time, it didn't seem that she was pimping me out, though. It seemed like she made it seem, I was young. I was a um, good part of 22, 
Mm-hmm. Um, she was giving me a place to stay. She was letting my kids, they were really young at that age, come over on the weekends and see me. Never stay the night, though. They, mm-hmm. they were never allowed to stay the night. Um, he was incarcerated. She made it look, she made it seem like she was doing me a big favor. Mm. Even till, um, she passed away, um, about six, seven months ago. And even till her her dying day, the last thing she ever said to me, uh, before she passed away was, mama taught you a hustle. Mama taught you something that you will never forget. And there should be no not ever a day will you will be broke mm. because mom taught you this. Mm. And that, it's, I mean, it, it really hit hard. You know, when she, when she passed away, it really hit hard. Mm. Um, but I didn't look at it like she was using me or she was taking advantage of me. But then when I look back now, especially with talking to you, I do see it differently, yeah. a lot differently. Well, I think that's one of the common misconceptions when we talk about, like, exploitation or trafficking or, like, and even some of the gray areas of it. It's, like, people want this idea of, like, the the perfect victim, so to speak. Like, people don't understand how much manipulation is involved. Like, it's not like if someone is going to be good at exploiting someone else and benefiting from their labor, whether that's sex or labor, like, at cleaning the apartment, you know, then they're not just going to outright be, like, awful to you all the time. You know, there's... No, she was great to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would go shopping, of course, with my money. Mm -hmm. And we would go... She would let me... She would take me to go get my nails done. I would always go to the tanning bed. Um, I didn't have a car at the time um, because it was like I could never save back enough money Mm -hmm. to get a car at the time because um, once I started saving up money... She would always want more, want more, and want more. The more mm-hmm. I would make, the more she would want. Mm-hmm. The more, the higher the bills would go. You know, it would be winter, and the the light, the light bill, the gas bill was going up. It was always something. It was never enough. Mm-hmm. Um, what percentage of what you made would you say you gave to her? I say that she would take half. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. But she la- she made it seem like, but mm-hmm. you're living in my house. Mm-hmm. You're, we're doing this as a favor because you have nowhere else to go because your family don't want you there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't go where your kids are. Mm-hmm. And my son is locked up, who is your fiance, who you have a diamond ring on your finger from. Mm-hmm. So, who you said yes that you're going to marry. So it was like I had to be there. I had to. There were no options. There was no options. I had to do that. And I had to wake up in the morning. And I had, even though I worked all night long till 3 in the morning in the club, dead tired, I had to get up and I had to clean those apartments with her. Mm. And I never saw one bit of that money. But she kept me fed with pain pills, mm. which gave me the energy to keep going. Mm-hmm. When you when you stay up all night, you work all night at the club from 9 till 3 in the morning. Then you get up at 6.30 and you have a coffee and Xanax and a few nor- Norcos thrown at you. Mm. And you are to clean all day, come back about 2, lay down, 
get in the shower. I remember there would be times when we were, when I was rushing to get ready because I'd overslept being so tired that she would be actually, I would be getting dressed, lotioning up. She would be painting my toenails for me, wow. helping me pick out my outfit that I was going to wear that night. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be late because, you know, you have to pay a late fee. Yeah. Had you, had you experienced an opioid addiction at this point before she had started supplying you with them? No. Never. Not once. No. Um, when I was never, you know, when I was a teenager, it was the, I smoked, you know, mm-hmm. I smoked the weed. I, mm-hmm. but I did the, you know, I'd pop some ecstasy sometimes, but it was never nothing like, um, hardcore, like yeah. the, the opiate addiction, yeah, you know, it's more recreational. Yeah. But I, once she started feeding me to feeding them to me, I thought, wow, I'm getting a lot of energy. And she would always be like, you like how mom making you feel? Want make you feel good, you know. Get 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 a lot of money going in on you. You you got energy, you know. Mm-hmm. And she just then she got me to go to a doctor, mm-hmm. and then she got me through the doctor route. So then I was getting my own prescriptions because then I wasn't dipping into hers anymore. Mm-hmm. So not only was now she was making my um, dancing money off of me, but she was also. I was cleaning apartments for her, and now she didn't have to pay me out of her mm-hmm. bottles. Because she got you Because now she's got me addicted, and she got me into a doctor where now I am getting my own benzos. Mm-hmm. I didn't get my own pain pills because I had nothing wrong with me to get pain pills. Right. But I did get my own benzos, and that led to a benzo and an opiate addiction. Wow. Which now, 10 years later, I still fight with my opiate addiction. But now from going from pain pills has now led to heroin Mm. so it just sounds like it really progressed yes and it progressed very very fast i didn't realize how fast it it like progressed but now that i look back i do realize that it did progress pretty fast um but not when i was with her what what happened was after about six months i said F this. Mm-hmm. I'm done. You're taking half my money. I can do this by myself. What? I can get a car. I don't need you. And I don't need him who's locked up <laughs> doing nothing for me, yeah. taking all of my money. I'm stupid. I'm literally mm-hmm. stupid. So I moved out, which caused her to be so mad at me, so mm-hmm. angry. And um, so I moved out. Were you Were you scared when you moved out? Like, were you afraid she was going to hurt you or anything? Or I knew she was going to make try to make my life a living hell. And mm-hmm. I knew once he got out, he was going to come after me. Mm-hmm. But um, I got my own place. I got a car. Actually, I moved in. No, I actually moved in with my sister. Okay. So, yeah. What was that? Did she try and get you to come back after you left? Oh, all or? the time. All the time. What would she do? She would say, um, Mom misses you, Mama needs you. Well, then I went to prison mm-hmm. for what I had gotten. The five felonies had now caught up with me. I had violated my probation because she got me on an opiate Benz. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on opiate and benzo, which violated my probation. I went to Brazil um, with the, another guy. The country or the no, city? No, the city. <laughs> I was like, dang, some serious stuff. No, to the city in Indiana. Okay. Like, you know, Brazil, yeah, yeah. Indiana. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I met another guy uh, while dancing. Um, and 
I met him, and then I was wanted by the IMPD mm-hmm. for violation of parole or violation of probation. Sorry, and we went to Brazil, and I was on the run up there. Well, then I came back. I moved in with his mother, and I started dancing. And mm-hmm. then I got caught at her house like a few weeks later. I'm thinking um, I was went back to working at the same club, and I'm thinking one of the girls turned me in because she gave me a ride home that night. <laughs> yeah, still trying to figure that one out. I'm still trying to figure that. She never admitted it, even yeah. though we're still we still talk to this day. Mm-hmm. She never admitted that, but no one else knew where I was, mm-hmm. and um, it was kind of weird that she just kind of offered me that ride home that night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and now the uh, to this day I still don't know, but I I really do know I think. But, yeah. But I I don't know. She's never gonna admit to that because yeah. that's what sent me to prison. But yeah. So then I did um the rest of my time in prison. I did about uh, six months, uh, in all about a year because I had to do my counting time too, mm-hmm. and um I had to do my time for my felonies. Okay. And not one time did I get a letter. Did I get a phone call? Did I get a dollar from the lady that I was living with? From Mama? Yeah, from Mama. Not one time did I get a letter from Mama. Mm -hmm. And come to find out that he was still in prison for the same thing that we weren't sure. Because we did the thing together. Mm -hmm. You know, we did the crime together. But she said, well... If Mama would have known you was in prison, then I would have done this. If Mama would have known... How hard was it? You knew because we, me and we were on the same case together. Right. Sure. You had to know because he was my, he was my. What do you call that when you're you commit a crime together? Yeah, he was my accomplice or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like we committed the crime together, so therefore he did time, I did time. I mean, everyone knows how to look up names. And where did you think I went for a year? Right. Vacation? To freaking, obviously, to Brazil. No. <laughs> no, yeah. So not one time did she send me a letter or anything. And to this day, even to the day she died, she would always say, if Mama would have known, I feel so bad. If just, if I would have known that you were in prison, I would have sent you a lot of money. No, she wouldn't have. No, she wouldn't have. And I know that. Yeah. Do you, so, so you never really had an addiction before, um, before you got connected with mama, right? Yes. And so then, so really the addiction started at the same time you're being introduced to the sex industry. Now, had you ever thought about dancing before? Never. I was so scared. Mm. I was so, I was so nervous. I was so scared because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to get up here and I'm going to have to get naked. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh. I was so scared. My heart was racing like a million (laughs) miles an hour. So was there... What was the main thing that made you feel, like, hooked? Just, like, the money? The or, money. Yeah. The money. Did you... So, why did... When Mama's handing you this Xanax before you go in for the first time, what's, like, your thought process of, like, why are you handing this to me? Or did you pretty much assume you knew why she was handing that to you? Or... She said it was to relax me. Mm. She, she The Xanax were to relax me, and the Norcos... And the Vicodins was to give me energy because I had been cleaning apartments mm. during the day. Yeah. And I was tired. Yeah. So it was to give me energy and it was to relax me, the benzos. Mm. Not knowing what she was really doing. Yeah. So how do you feel like the industry and addiction like 
played into each other. Oh, definitely. It plays way into into each other. It's like hand in hand into each other. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know not one girl that could honestly say that she didn't was not scared, was not a nervous wreck the first time she got on stage. Um, I've never met one. If you have, let me know. Because <laughs> I'd like to know because that girl, she's yeah. a badass. Um, <laughs> but so when you get in there and... and even if a girl's there or even if a, a, a manager or someone from the club offers you some, you know, something and said, here, I'm going to give this to you and it's going to take away and it's going to relax you and it's going to help you. It's going to make you dance like no other. Mm-hmm. And you take it and then you make all this money. And then at the end of the night, you're like, hey, I'm rolling in the dough and I'm feeling great. Let's do this again. Yeah. It's addicting. Mm -hmm. And when you're getting it handed to you overly, overly, and you're not paying a dime for it. Well, really, I was. Right. But in her mind, in the way she looked at it was, I'm looking out for you. You're looking out for me. And since you live under my roof. Yeah. You know, Right. We're, we're, we're hand, we're you owe me. Yeah. You owe me. Mama loves you. You know, she wanted me to get a tattoo of um, wings, of angel wings on my um, shoulder blade, which I never did. But um, definitely in the industry, I would say, I mean, there would be times um, later on, I really got into the drug scene uh, years later. Mm. And it went to um, Go, which is um, meth. Okay. I started smoking meth. Um, and, you know, of course, you can't light a bowl in the back of the dressing room. Right. So you go back there, and you snort a little line off of the counter, or you snort a little line off of the toilet seat, mm-hmm. um, because it gives you energy. Mm-hmm. I remember I was uh, living with a girlfriend of mine, and she was a dancer, too. We would work six days a week for, like, two to three weeks at a time. We would smoke a bowl, a couple bowls, before you we went in. We'd work three to three. 12 hours. Wow. We would smoke a bowl before we went in, and then we'd always bring some with us. Mm-hmm. And then mid-shift, we would go back and snort it. Mm-hmm. So then keep us up for the rest of the night. And, man, we were rolling in the dough. Yeah. Because, I mean, I remember one night the most I ever made was like 600 mm-hmm. on a 3-to-3 three three shift. Wow. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Because I never did the prostitution thing mm-hmm. when I was in the club. Yeah. Um, so are there, I know what I think about this while I hear your opinion. Uh, are there certain clubs that you feel like will more look the other way with drugs and other clubs that are really like, will come down on it or like, what does that look like? Every club that I've worked at it, at worked at, look the other way and probably the, uh, bartender would be serving it up to. Mm. And they like you to drink. So when you're drinking on top of all of this, then you're really whoa. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Do you feel like it was a job that you could do sober? Um, now, I'm now 10 years later, yes, I can do sober, which I'm actually, um, I've been contemplating that right now, you know, because just because I'm in the transition life mm-hmm. of, um, trying to get out of the industry but you know the money's just so so addictive but yes um i did it for so but that's just because i've done it for so long i've done it for 10 years mm-hmm. so it's nothing for me to get on stage and 
horoscope there because I learned how to, um, oh, what does my psychiatrist call it? Disassociate. Um, disassociate, yes. Yeah. I can disassociate by, like, clicking my fingers mm. on and off. I can turn it on like a night switch. Can you talk through what disassociating looks like at the club for people who might not know what that word means? So disassociation is um, basically my mind or, okay, basically my I'm up on stage. My body is there. But my mind is not there at all. I completely disassociate myself from my surroundings. I can, I can talk to you and I'll get bits and pieces to react to you. But I won't be totally in the conversation mm. because I learned how to do that. Mm. Because when you're in the club and you're dancing and you're not on anything, you want to take that away you want to take the fact that you're dancing naked for strangers and rubbing your boobies in their faces and all kinds of stuff you want to take that away mm-hmm. you want to take that trauma event away from you mm-hmm. so you use drugs and alcohol to do it mm-hmm. and it, if you when you can't do that mm-hmm. you learn to disassociate which I know how to do now mm-hmm. Yeah. Do did I kind of explain? It's really yeah. hard to. No, no, it's really hard to explain. It. I didn't even know that I know how to do it. I actually just learned about seven months ago that I learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, my therapist is the one that called me out on it because I was actually <laughs> she did. I was actually in a meeting uh, with my team members and stuff, and she was like. Um, after the meeting, she was like, hey, can I talk to you for a little bit? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem, what's up? And she was like, you were disassociating. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What is that? And she's like, well, that's a negative thing that you do. Mm. And I'm like, negative? And she explained to me what it was. She said, you know, your body was here. You were listening, you were paying attention, but your mind was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. What was she said, what was your mind focused on? I said, my mind was focused on my baby. Mm. She was like, oh, okay, yeah. She was, and that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was disassociating. Mm-hmm. She said, can you tell me what the whole meeting was about? No. I could tell her bits and pieces, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell her what the whole meeting was about. Yeah, and disassociating is different than just, like, zoning out or, like, daydreaming for a minute. Yes, uh, disassociating is, um, she said it's, it's a negative, it's a negative thing to do. People do it when they're, like, being raped. It's a lot of trauma victims do it. Yeah. Um, to get to get their mind survival. away. It's, it's a survival technique. Well, she said negative. I said, hey, this is not negative. This is some uh, positive shit that I know how to do. <laughs> and it has taken me 10 years to learn it. And I can switch it off and on like nothing. Yeah. So in my, and I, I really do see it as a positive thing. What, do, what does she think is negative about it? She said because the negative part about it is that you shouldn't push yourself away from the trauma. Mm. That she said that your 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 body is facing so much trauma mm. that your mind is guarding itself from it mm. because like your mind protects your body right. from the trauma and that my body is enduring so much trauma that it has now mm-hmm. put up a wall. It's shut down. It's shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean. Coping mechanisms are complicated, too, you know? It's like the thing that can save you is also the thing that can harm you the most, you know? Because, I mean, that's I mean that's how I feel for a lot of people even who, who, who dance. It's like sometimes the club 
save them, but then also kind of run their life at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so, um, so after you left mama, um, then you got into the harder drugs. What do you feel like led you into like heroin and things like that? The opiates. I liked it having the energy. Mm. Um, the the meth I didn't like too much because it never you never let you never sleep on it. Yeah. Well, at least I could never. I could yeah. never eat or I could never sleep on it. But meth is a money drug, yeah. and I never made so much money than I did on meth. Why? Why is it a money drug? Because um, you can smoke or snort a bowl of um, a line of meth and be up for literally, depending on how good the shit is be good up for two days. Wow. And you don't sleep. So right. when you don't sleep, you, make you can money. make more money. Yeah. You, I mean, and, and your body is awoke. Your mind is awoke. So what's more to do than, I mean, some people get high and just sit out a TV screen or they, you know, tweak out on a video game. Mine was I went to work and worked three to three every day. And then I would do that for like two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then we would stop. Mm-hmm. And we would take about three days off and we would sleep and we would recuperate and we wouldn't do anything. Because mm-hmm. you had to rejuvenate your body mm-hmm. after three weeks of not sleeping. Right. So I think the longest I stayed up was about four weeks. And that's when um, mess psychosis will start to set in. Oh, wow. You'll start seeing shadow people. Mm. You'll start hearing voices. Um, it can set in way long before three weeks, too. But Wow. That's scary. Yeah. Wow. Um, so then after, so how long had you, how long were you on meth and how long were you on heroin? Um, I dipped and dabbled in it. Uh, in the meth, I was on for a couple years, on and off. Um, I did been dabbled in all the drugs. The heroin, I've literally been on for about five to six years straight. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until recently that I really got really into it. Um, the last time I relapsed, I started banging it. Mm-hmm. So I had banged it before, but mm-hmm. not like I had you Can know, you on my birthday. Um, banging is where you take a needle and you inject it into your veins. How had you done it before then? I had snorted it. Okay. So you kind of reached this pinnacle of addiction then, and what turned it around for you after your relapse? Um, I relapsed, and I was sitting in a meeting, and I was, uh, they had told me that they were giving my little baby up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And he just turned two this last Saturday. Mm-hmm. So that really hit me hard. Like, I was going to lose my son. I was going to lose my baby. And um, I went home that night. um, And I was also kind of homeless at the time. I was living with other people. I was living with other people, too. So I went back home where I was staying that night. And I literally thought about ODing myself. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and cried and cried and cried. And I uh, banged on my, my, my stash that I had. And um, I contemplated, what should I do? Should I give my baby up Mm. or should I get clean? Mm. And I didn't know. And then um, I just, something clicked and I I couldn't give my son up. I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. And it's been five months and I've been, I've changed my whole life totally around. Yeah, you have. I've never seen someone as motivated to change as I have with you. 
Thank you. It's yeah, I work in really hard. I'm, I Every time I spend time with you, I leave encouraged. Like, this girl is so motivated. Like, you are so motivated. Thank you. And um, I think, like, because honestly, like, you've helped me drop my stereotypes of parents who lose their kids, you know? And I think that that's, um, when we, when we talk about, like, drugs and people losing their kids and some it's easy to demonize people when you don't know them you know and you don't know their story of how they ended up in that situation yeah like I felt like a terrible mother Mm -hmm. um it's embarrassing to tell people why I lost my my son um it may it upsets me and it's it's very embarrassing because it it it, not knowing you Mm-hmm. Just telling you why I lost my son yeah. may would make you think that I'm a terrible person. I'm an awful mother. Mm-hmm. You know, I never hurt my son. I never abused my son. Um, I had died. I OD'd mm-hmm. um, with my son in the car, mm-hmm. and his dad was driving. Um, and that's that's awful. Like I look at it and I think, oh my god, if I was hearing that from another person, mm-hmm. I would think you are the most shittiest parent ever. Mm-hmm. But not me. I am so good with my baby, mm-hmm. and uh, even my whole team t- tells me I'm I'm an awesome mom. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm awesome. But. Well, it's just like addiction doesn't addiction doesn't just like pick. It's it's not. I don't know. You and I have talked about like addiction is it's a disease and a lot of times it's a result of trauma. And so it's like both uh, it's a balance of um, disease and personal responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. If there's one thing I could change about myself, it would be that I was uh, that I wasn't addicted to a heroin. Yeah. That that's why that's what I would change about myself. And now that I look back at it, even like sitting here talking to you, um, I think that, you know, maybe mama is the reason why it got started. She was one of the main reasons why I got addicted to opiates, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's very sad. But I, I have been working. I've been working very hard because I, I'm not going to lose my son. I love him so much. He's he's my motivation for everything. He's the he's the reason why I wake up in the morning. Yeah. Um, even I got in trouble with um, DCS because why I was, uh, when I relapsed, I wasn't going to visits. Mm. I didn't want my son to see me like that. I didn't mm. want to be messed up out of my mind, high on heroin, seeing my son. Right. But I got in trouble for that. Right. I, I got in more trouble from not going to the visits than I would have from going to the visits high, wow. which I did not understand. <laughs> That's be- weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it, it 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 really is weird. They're still like, well, you should have been visiting. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't have been visiting. I was high out of my mind. I didn't want my son to see me, yeah. but they wanted me to be at those visits. Yeah, because they said it traumatized my son. Well, wouldn't you think that my son seeing me high off my ass would be more traumatizing than me not being there? Yeah, I don't know. It's a corrupt system. Yeah. I guess it all, all of it is, but. So what are things that you've done to, uh, to try and maintain your sobriety? Uh, the main thing is I've had to literally change my whole life around. Mm. I had to delete all my dealers, all my friends and numbers. Um, I really don't have any friends. I had to change everyone that I know and talk to 
um, I had to, I had to just leave everybody, you know, I mean, not leave them, but I had to, I can't be around them because when all of your friends are sitting there doing drugs and hanging out, what are you going to do? I can't be there. I'm a drug addict. I like to get high. If I'm (laughs) sitting in a room with all my friends and they're getting high, what am I going to want to do? I'm going to want to get high. Right. So I had to change my life around. Um, I go to NAs. Um, I had to go to IOP, which is inpatient out, um, intensive outpatient. Um, yeah, I uh, I go to therapy. I do home base. Um, little things. I started coloring because um, sometimes I'll get really. It's lonely. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, and then my son's dad. He's incarcerated right now so it's up to me to get our son back it's up to me to complete our family get our family complete again um so I get lonely it's very lonely and I think you know at first I would sit there and cry in my room and say oh my god I'm such a loser (laughs) no you know nobody wants to hang out with me because I'm such a loser no I don't want to hang out with anybody because I know they want to get high around me yeah um so yeah I think that that's something people don't always realize is sobriety is not just like, well, just don't do drugs. It's changing literally everything in your life. Like, I can't imagine just, like, uprooting all my relationships. A lot of times you have to change where you live because your living situation was around people who were getting high. Yeah, I changed my living situation. Yeah. Yep, I moved out. Yeah. I was living in, um, I was living with the... I was living with my dealer and his girlfriend. There. <laughs> yeah, I was living with his dealer and his girlfriend. And he would literally, I would let them use my car, my truck at the time, and they would literally, literally give me the drug. So for letting them use the, the, my truck. So I, I, I had it, you know. And um, so I moved out of there, which caused them to destroy my truck, mm-hmm. which now has left me carless <laughs> yeah um so i moved out of there um i was living in hotel rooms of course that's drug heaven over there yeah. Yeah. so um i pretty much just stayed in my room mm-hmm. um did my dcsf and stayed in my room and that's you would come i remember the first time i ever met you uh-huh. was you came to my hotel room and picked me up mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah so i did i'd had to change my whole and i've changed my outlook just my outlook on life, you know, and I and um, I I hope that people don't, you know, look at me like a bad mom. But me just telling them my story, of course, they would look at me like a bad mom. I mean, I died in a car with my baby in the back seat when he was eight months old. I mean, that's you're, freaking but awful. You're, but you're more than the worst thing you've ever done. You yeah. know, everyone yeah. is more than the worst thing they've ever done. And it's not like you just woke up one day and were like, you know what I want to do? I want to get super high, OD, with my kid in the backseat. Exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it, you've shared a lot of your story and that, I mean, that's why the name of the freaking podcast is It's Complicated. Because it is complicated. It's like, it's not just like, you're this terrible person who wanted to traumatize your son. You know, like no, you love never. him. I love him so much. And and you've had to put so much work towards overcoming those those demons that you struggle with still. So much. You know? I've done 26 weeks of domestic violence classes. I just did eight weeks of IOP, which I moved to aftercare, which is another eight weeks. Can you can you share what IOP is for people that don't know? IOP is intensive outpatients. I go to a class uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Three hours a day, 
three days a week. Ooh. And you have to do 16 NAs. Wow. Besides that. Plus, you have to do packets and you have to stay sober through it all. You have to have three consecutive jug screens. All my jug screens have been clean. I did not have one dirty uh, screen in uh, aftercare. Way to go. Or, I mean, sorry, in IOP. Way to go. Thank you. Thank you. So now I moved to aftercare, which aftercare is one time a week, Mondays from 2 to 4. And you have to go to 16 NAs, three family groups, like I invited you to my one mm-hmm. family group. Um, and then you graduate and you're done. Wow. So through it all, a 16-week program. That's a lot. And I know just from knowing you, I know how much time and coordination is taken for you every day to like go to all these different things. And especially without having a vehicle. So people don't know, like transportation in our city is not super great. <laughs> no, it can take like people don't know that like somewhere that is 10 minutes in a car is 40 minutes on a bus. Yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. So I go to um, I go to aftercare. I go to N.A.'s. I go to therapy, home base, visits, meetings. I meet with you. I'm through with um with unconditional. I literally have seven to eight te- team members on my team. Wow. Plus my DCS worker. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like you've handled it all with like, um, you've used every resource possible. Yes, and at first I wasn't. At first mm-hmm. I wasn't using the resources. I was mad. I was angry. I was. I had hatred in my heart mm-hmm. because for something I had done. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I stepped up and realized that it was my fault, mm-hmm. that I am the reason that happened, mm-hmm. that I need to change for my son to be a better mother, to be a better person, um, that I changed everything, mm-hmm. you know? That's not, and I did that for him. That's not an easy thing to do, to take that level of responsibility of your life and like look around and be like, okay, what's the common denominator here? You know? No, yeah, and it's hard. Lessons. It's hard. There's been days that I break that I broke down. There's been days where I called my therapist. I can't do it. How am I going to do all this? You know, I don't have a car, and I have to go to five different places all today and take five drug screens in a week. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do all this? I broke down crying. I don't know how I'm doing it, but you know what? I did it. I take one day at a time, mm-hmm. one hour of the day. Just like today, I literally have been up since, sorry for my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I literally have been up since literally 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, and then I came to my group and done this podcast with you. Now I have to go to aftercare and I'll go to an NA and I won't be at home in bed until later tonight. Whew. So, yes. Yeah. That's my, my voice is kind of scratchy probably. <laughs> well, I'm glad you've been coming. Um, uh, Jersey's been coming to our Club 180 group, which is here. Uh, unconditional. It's a group for people who are out of the industry. And the reason why we make it kind of exclusive to women that, have already transitioned out. I mean, one, it's 9.30 in the morning and no one who's currently dancing is going to come to a group exactly. at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> um, and part of why we have it in the morning is so it's when people's kids are in school. So it's a little easier for working moms. And then also um, because it can be really triggering being around people that are currently dancing um, because then it's like, oh, well, maybe I should go back to that. And so if you're trying to stay out and work on a different goal, then that can be that can be difficult, but what I've really loved about the group and seeing everyone in it is just seeing the the community start to form and just feeling like I feel like a phrase that always happens in the group is like 
you guys understand, you know, and everyone's like, that happened to me too, or this happened to me too. Mm-hmm. And so I'm yeah. glad that you're starting to become a part of that community. Yeah, too. thank you. I really like it. The, um, the group, it's nice. It's nice to feel that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear that someone's been through the same thing you've been through. Maybe not to the deep extent, right. but, but they and are. they understand. And we're always willing to listen to each other and talk and give each other advice. Yeah. Even if you don't want to listen to the advice, yeah. we'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> so with you, you're on this path of sobriety, you've been five months sober, you're, about, you're wrapping up some of these classes, you're making a lot of progress on getting your son back. Mm-hmm. Um what would you say are some of your, your next big goals for your life? My next big goal, I would say definitely get a car. Um, and I want to look into going to some school and getting into another place because I am paying way too much rent yeah. <laughs> to where I'm at. So the first place would definitely, uh, the first thing I would say is definitely get a car. Mm-hmm. Because especially with the winter going around, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah. he's only two. So, yeah. Yeah, that's sorry. Yeah, and I haven't been up as long as you, and I'm over here falling yeah, asleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but what? So, what are you interested in going to school for? Um, you know, I was just talking to one of the girls today uh, at the meeting, and I was thinking Nell Tech. You know, just to get just to get started off with something. But what I really want to do is um, help women. That have been in addiction and domestic violence issues. Yeah. I think no one can speak into to those struggles like somebody who's been through it. Themselves. Exactly. And I like I don't want to be a DCS worker. I don't <laughs> and I don't want to be a therapist. Um, you know, I just wanna be I don't know, maybe like start an organization or something kinda like you did, but I wanna be paid for it because I love money. <laughs> The nonprofit work might not be yeah, for you. Yeah, no, I don't want to do nonprofit. Sorry, I love money. You have to have money to survive. But um, no, I would actually help someone if they needed it. Um, if I was at a spot, but yeah, that's I don't know what what would you call what I want to do. What would you say? Um, I don't know. I think from what you've shared with me, you want to get to a point of stability and then in your stability Definitely. use that to give back to other people who have yes. been through similar things that you Definitely. have. I say um, you do something good, something good will come back to you. Yeah. That's my motto right now. Reap what you sow. Yes. Sort of thing. Do something good, something will come back to you. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we have about probably like 10 minutes left um, so for the remainder of our time. Just kind of, I want to do a couple more technical kind of questions away from your story, but more of just to the broadness of like addiction and the the sex industry. Um, I think one of the things, though, one of the common misconceptions, though, that I hear from people is they think like everybody who dances is in the throes of like hardcore addiction. No, that is not true. Yeah. So can you can you talk about that a little bit? Um, everybody who dances is not into addiction. I know a lot of girls that one of the girls that I lived with, she didn't even smoke weed. Like, <laughs> yeah. So that's that. It's just like a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Just like every girl that's a dancer is a whore. Every girl that dances does sex work. Mm-hmm. No, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Every da- every girl that's a dancer does not do drugs. Yeah. Um, would you have an estimate of what do you, from your, just your personal experience at the few clubs you've worked at, what, like, percentage would you say? Are I would say using? about 60. 
60, 70%. Yes. I mean, it's not something that they'll come out and tell you. Right. You know, if, I mean, if you're, especially if you're new to the club, they're not going to flaunt it to you because it's illegal. Um, But you, you can tell and you can know. And when you get in there, you know. Yeah. And from my experience, like certain clubs will tolerate more than others. Like some clubs will like, like I've had friends who in addiction have been fired from like multiple clubs for showing up high or, I mean, I would say, I hesitate on this, but I would say most clubs and honestly, most of society kind of looks the other way on weed um, just because of where we're at in America right now. So I don't really know anybody who's getting fired for showing up with just like having just smoked a blunt or something. I used to live in Colorado. So and I, I actually moved before they legalized it and I just went back a couple of years ago and I was like, hey, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah. But as far as like other drugs aside yeah. from weed, I would say like a lot of clubs that I know of, um, like there's one club we go into where they don't even have doors on the bathroom stalls in the dressing room. Yeah, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. They can take all the doors off all they want. I'm still gonna, I'm snort, I'm still gonna snort my stash. <laughs> I can do it right in front of, uh, without somebody looking with the dollar bill. Yeah, so. I've actually, I've been at a club where someone overdosed before. Yeah, and it was really, it was really, really scary. Um, I've never been fired from a club from being high. But no. go ahead, you. Yeah, were, uh, yeah, I was at a club and um, a girl was clearly overdosing it was like even like foaming at the mouth like uh, passed out yeah. and uh nobody wanted to call the ambulance because if you call an ambulance then a place can get for an overdose a place can get marked as a crime scene and after like you've been marked as a crime scene so many times and like i think it affects your business license yeah or a common nuisance yeah and so um that i don't know i'd only been going in the club a year at the most at that point and that was my did they call Eventually, I was because I I had never seen an overdose. I honestly didn't know that much about overdosing. I mean, now at this point, I've been trained on Narcan multiple times, and mm-hmm. I always carry it with me. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really um, it was really scary, and and because okay. I was just like I was like, what's happening? And somebody was like, oh, she's had too much to drink. And yeah, I'm like, I've pretty seen many, sure I've seen that's many not. Overdosing. Yeah. Yeah, and then finally I was like, if someone doesn't call 911, like, I'm calling. And well, if did. she was drinking, it could have been the mixture of all right. of the other things right. that she was not doing. Just straight no, alcohol. it wasn't just straight <laughs> alcohol. It was the mixture of whatever else she was doing. Right, right. But she, she recovered, and, and the ambulance came in time and everything. But, um, and I know there's even, like, controversy for some reason over Narcan and the distribution of Narcan. But in my experience, um, I've seen it save lives. Uh, um, in my experience, it saved my life. Mm. Um, I was hit with Narcan with uh, the incident is how I lost my baby. If it wasn't for Narcan, I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to you right now. Wow. Because it brought me back. And one of the other myths I hear about Narcan is people are like, oh, well, it makes uh, addicts just use more freely because then they know they'll they can be brought back with narcan like is that a thought process you had at it all? never was a thought process to me because i have only been hit with narcan that one time because mm-hmm. uh, nobody wants to say oh i'm gonna go ahead and do as much as i can right, to try right. to overdose right but i have known of people being hit with narcan five to six times yeah i actually uh heard that they were gonna like try to pass a law where they'd only do an ambulance run 
on you so many times and hit you so many times what? with Narcan because of that. Yeah. But that to me yeah, is just like, what if, what if, because, it was, what if it was your kid? Yeah, but what is happening is they're running, they're doing all these Narcan runs multiple times, five to six times on the mm. same person, and they could go to your grandma who had one heart attack. Mm. instead of going to your grandma who had one heart attack that could save her life is now going to and hitting this another person with narcan five to six times what do you feel like i mean and this is a complicated question but what do you feel like is the solution to helping fight the opioid epidemic in our state um i personally am on methadone I, um, this last time that I overdosed, I went to the methadone clinic because it has helped me tremendously. Um, I know people, a lot of people will argue, well, you're not clean. Yes, I am. I am very clean. I don't even do, I don't even drink. That's how clean I am. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say that, yeah, methadone to me has been a lifesaver and it's helped me get my son back. Mm -hmm. But you have to want to change. Yeah. Even if I go to the methadone clinic, if you don't want to change, you're not going to. If you don't want to stop doing drugs and hanging out with people you're hanging out with, you're not going to. You and only you are going to be the one to change your life Mm -hmm. and no one else. I think sometimes um, shame keeps people in that place, you know, of like, well, I'm just going to keep doing this because... I don't believe that people would would accept me again, you know, or like I've burned too many bridges or was that a thought process you had at all or? No, actually this year, uh, actually the beginning of October, I look back because in October of last year, I was living in a tent in the woods with my baby's dad. All the people I've helped, all the family that I have, everyone that I helped and everyone I knew was nowhere to be found Mm -hmm. and I was high homeless hungry and living in a tent in the woods and all just in this amount of time one year later I'm here now not because of no man not because of anyone I have my own place I you know I'm working on getting my own car again Mm -hmm. but I have been in a place where I've never been out in my whole life I am clean I am completely sober and it's me only me that have done it yeah and I think that's things like like what you said like you have to want it you have to want it yes and I no one has no man it's not because of no man or anything it's because of me what would you say to someone who is struggling with addiction right now I would say that um keep your head up and once you're tired of being sick and once you're tired of chasing that high and you're just going to keep chasing it and chasing it um there's help out there you just have to want it and you have to want to change and if you people love you and care for you and you know what was strange to me is even when I died even when I OD'd and I knew it killed me I still went and did the heroin wow knowing that it had killed me it wasn't until they were going to take my baby and put him up for adoption that I was like no way I am not gonna let this happen Mm. I am going to change Mm. so it sounds like you had to care it sounds like you couldn't even you couldn't find the courage to care about your own life enough to stop but it was caring about your son's life exactly I care about my my son's life more Mm. and I stopped for him Exactly. And that's where you have to be. Mm-hmm. At. You have to want to change and you have to want to care about something mm-hmm. better and greater than you. Yeah. 
some people would argue different. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, addiction is really complicated. I've lost a lot of people to addiction, and it's not – what I would want people to know is that, again, like just what I said to you, like people are not just the worst thing they've ever done, you know? Like you can be in addiction and still be – you're still a beautiful person. Thank you. It's just the the addiction – like drugs change who people are, and who someone is when they're high is not who they are. No. Definitely not. And it's like seeing a shell of a, of a person. Yes. You know. Yes. And um, It's like yeah. all the bad wrapped up in one. Mm-hmm. And you look at, like, it came to the point I looked over myself in the mirror and I didn't even know who I was anymore. Mm-hmm. I had lost, my, lost myself completely. Even after five months, I'm still finding myself. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a whole more journey, but I am, I am a whole lot farther than I have been since last year when I was living in a tent with my baby's dad. Yeah, yeah, I would say you've made quite a lot yeah. of progress. Um, yeah, so I just want to encourage anyone who is struggling with addiction to get help. Um, yeah, like I said, I've, I've uh, trying not to cry. <laughs> I've lost a lot of people to it, and I lost a really close friend to addiction recently. And um, it's not – you are worth it. You're yeah. wor- your life is it's worth that. it. It hurts. Everyone I know is dead yeah. or in jail. Yeah. Uh, all the people that I've grown up with, um, all the people that I looked at as a mother figure to me are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have many people that overdosed and been murdered. Yeah. And if you ever are contemplating like starting or playing around with drugs to numb the pain, it's not worth it. So not worth it. One little pill can change the whole route of your whole entire life. Yeah. And you not even know it. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, change is possible, but it's it's not easy, but it's possible, and there's no such thing as too far gone. Like Never. you can always come back. You can always make a comeback. I was gone, gone, yeah. so gone. Like I was so gone that I was in a DCS meeting, hmm. high off my ass, and they knew it, hmm. and they said, "We're gonna take your son from you for good, and we're gonna take your rights away, and he's gonna be placed up for adoption." Hmm. I'm glad you got that wake-up call. Yes, me too. Thank you. Glad I worked, you're I worked very, very hard. I'm still working very hard. I got along. I got a little bit more ways, but I'm about to go to unsupervised visits. So That's awesome. I'm excited for that. That's so awesome. One step, one day at a time, just for the day. That's that's our um, – just for today. That's our NA um, saying, just for today. Just for today, remember that you are loved and cared for and you're not alone. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing. I know it was really personal. And yeah, thanks um, for having me. You know, you're you're a rock star now because you're on a podcast. Yes. (laughs) And you never heard a podcast before this one, right? No, I hadn't. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing, and we'll catch you 